morning. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Paul's famous chapter on love, we mentioned it in class this morning, it starts out telling me no matter how religious I am, no matter how piously I live, if I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is paramount because God is love. And we can preach sermons all day long, and no matter how uh, meaningful I think those sermons may be, there's nothing to be gained from them without love. We can master everything we do or think or say, but if we do not have love, we are nothing. And Paul describes what this kind of godly love looks like. He says in verse 4, of course, of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, and love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Love is the fulfillment of everything else. It's the greatest of all that remains when we mature, when we get that glimpse of perfection. But God doesn't just talk about love. He gives us an example of what this kind of godly love is. Ephesians 5, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself for her that she might, or that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Jesus is the ultimate example of this kind of love because Jesus is the ultimate example of how a husband ought to love his wife. Jesus is the perfect husband, and he's a husband of a wondrous bride, the church, and Jesus loves his church with a perfect love. And Jesus set us an example of how love should be done by establishing us. And by his example, Jesus showed us that the most important thing on his mind then and now is that his bride would be taken care of. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he spent a, 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 some time with his disciples 
on the beach. And during that time, uh, he took Peter aside for a private moment that uh, John records for us in his gospel in the 21st chapter, starting in verse 15. And there, the Gospel of John tells of this conversation. After they had eaten breakfast, Simon Peter uh, came to Jesus, and Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And here we have Jesus. He's appearing uh, to his disciples. This is the third recorded time we have since his resurrection. He has a private time now with Peter and he's sharing uh, one of the most important thoughts on his mind. And essentially, Jesus tells Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep, tend my flock. Jesus is instructing Peter to make sure that the church is fed and protected, nurtured. That was his highest priority then, and it's his highest priority now. In one medical school, uh, the students were complaining because they found their, their list of classes they had to take. And on the list was physics. They just didn't understand, why would physics be important to becoming a doctor? So finally, one of them had the, the audacity to go up to a professor and ask, why do we have to take physics if we want to be doctors? And, and the professor thought about it for a moment, kind of scratched his head, and he said, well, you have to take physics because it helps us save lives. Save lives? What do you mean? How is physics going to help me save lives in a hospital? And the professor smiled and he said, well, the study of physics is important because it eliminates all the people who don't want to study physics from saving lives. Took me a second to. <laughs> In every field or endeavor, there are certain qualifications that need to be met. There's doctors who need to know about diseases, about how the human body works. There's electricians who need to understand Electricity, how to wire homes and businesses, auto mechanics need to have a, a working knowledge of, of different makes of cars and how their engines work. These are the kinds of information and skills people need to do their job right. And when a, a business needs to hire new workers, they'll put out a help wanted ad that says, these are the requirements. If you want this job, this is what you have to be able to do. Jesus said he loved the church. And it is an important task for those who love the church to take care of the flock. And in Titus chapter 1 and in 1 Timothy chapter 3, God has posted a help wanted at. God wants good elders to look after his church. And so he tells us what he expects of these men, what's going to be required from the job. And according to Paul's instructions to Titus, these are the instructions for a good elder. He's a good husband. He's a good father. He's not someone... Uh, who has to have his own way all the time. He's not overbearing. He doesn't get angry easily. He's not a drinker. Uh, he's an honest, gentle man, likes helping people. It's obvious that he takes his faith seriously. He works at living a, a holy uh, and disciplined life. He knows the Bible well enough um, that he can encourage other believers. He can oppose heresy. And he must have strong enough character that he's willing and able to stand against false 
doctrine. These are not optional. These are the requirements for the job. And in 1 Timothy, Paul writes, a bishop, another word for an elder or a shepherd, then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? 1 Timothy 3, 2-5. through 5. Jesus is saying he only wants the most experienced people to watch over his bride. He only wants men who have proven themselves to be good husbands and good fathers to make sure that his bride is taken care of. And these are the most basic of requirements. And I imagine that many of us over the past week have turned to these two passages uh, since Rick and Richard and Andy have told us that they want to add two more men to be our shepherds here. But sometimes we get so caught up in the technicalities of who can and who cannot be an elder that we forget why these qualifications were put there in the first place. An elder should shepherd the flock of God for only one reason. He loves Jesus. That's what motivates him to feed the flock, to tend the flock, to take care of the flock. An elder holds one of the most critical and valuable roles in the church. And a church is only going to be as loving and as strong as its elders are. It's not a position to be taken lightly. It's not a position as a congregation that we should appoint lightly. Peter told Jesus uh, he already knew all things, right? And that included the fact that Jesus knew that Peter loved him. If he didn't get it the two times that Peter told him, he already knew it. He knew all things about Peter already. And yet Jesus, he still interrogated Peter. He still asked him three times, do you love me? This was important to Jesus. He was going to watch his flock and, and what their motivations would be. And it has to be important to us too. That was the message that Jesus repeated over and over. The primary motivation for someone who wants to pastor Christ's flock is the elder's love of Jesus. If an elder loves Jesus, then he's going to know what his job is. But if that love isn't his motivating drive, then no matter how qualified he may look on paper, no matter how many of the boxes he ticks off, he is not going to know what his job is, to feed the lambs and the sheep and to take care of the flock. I once talked um, a few months ago with a friend of mine uh, who told about the new preacher that they had hired at their congregation. And in the group my friend belonged to, they had pastors who um, basically ran the church essentially alone. And my friend was talking about the great respect he had for this man by the way that he had come into the position. On his first day, he walked into the building and he called himself a locksmith. And he said, sir, change every lock in the building and give me the only set of keys. And my friend was really impressed because this man, he showed he was in control. He was in charge. He had the keys to everything. They did not. If they wanted anything in that building, at the church, they had to go through him. He was the leader. And now in this congregation, we do things a little differently based on how the early Christians did it. They had a multitude of pastors in every town or congregation. We see the 
plural used in Titus 1.5 and Acts 20.17 and Philippians 1.1 and so on. And perhaps that was to prevent this kind of mindset from setting in. But of course, the early church, they didn't have too many keys to hold on to. They didn't have too many uh, buildings. And we see in a, a situation with multiple key holders that can have problems too. I've told uh, quite a few of you. It's been one of my favorite stories the past couple of weeks of my key mishaps. The door to um, the office in the north wing, it locks when it shuts, right? And so put my stuff in there and Andy gave me a key. He said, you can get in whenever you want. I said, great. And so I put my stuff in there, I close the door and I come back the next day and I try to put my key in the, the slot, turn it and it's not working. So I sit there for a few minutes and I play around with it. And I said, well, you know, this is a nice commercial door handle. Maybe I just don't know how it works. Um, and so I play around with it for a few, a little while longer. And eventually I go home and call Andy. Andy says, Brandon, you have to turn the door handle when, uh, when you put the key in. I said, okay, fine. I'll go try that. So I go in, I put the key in the, the door and I turn it. It's still not opening. And so I call, call Lauren, you know, she's worked in retail. Maybe she knows something about commercial doors that I don't. She, she doesn't have any advice for me. I text Roger at some point, he, nothing there. Uh, and I, uh, there's 45 minutes. I said I was glad that there's not uh, security cameras up yet because there'd be 45 minutes of footage of me trying to get into this door. I, there, there's a, an access, an attic access in it, and I, I could see it through the window. I was like, maybe if I could just climb in and unlock it, then nobody would know I couldn't get this door open. So finally, Chantel comes Wednesday night with the, another key, and she's there to teach me how to use a door, right? And so she said, okay, come on over, Brandon, and puts the key in the door, and it opens right up. And I was like, see how easy that was? I said, okay, fine, try it with my key then. She sticks the key in. I didn't have the right key. It fit, but that's all it did. And this is the story about the, the guy who went in and changed all the locks on the doors his first day. That's what it reminded me of. Someone was coming in and trying to show me who was really in charge. <laughs> but there are many people who see the key as the ultimate sign of leadership. The key is what you need to get yourself in, but perhaps more importantly, the key is what you need to keep other people out. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift, and he lists several, but one of them is to lead, do it diligently. And the Greek word for lead there is proistomy. It means to stand before or to stand in front of, quite literally. Pro means before, istomi means to stand. It's a very simple word. It's very basic when you think about it. The leader stands out in front and leads. He leads the group. So we see two very different views of what it means to be a leader emerging. There's one view where the leader is the one with all the power. He's pushing his followers from behind. He's the guy with all the keys to the building. If you want in the building, you have to go through him. Jesus talked to his disciples about this in Mark 10, 42. He says, when they all came together, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, there are guys who like to be in charge. They want to change all the locks so that they have control. And Jesus tells us that's the worldly way of thinking about leadership. 
But Jesus tells us his leadership model was going to be something entirely different. He said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. In other words, Christian leadership is all about serving. It's not always about controlling. It's about loving Christ and loving people, and therefore feeding Christ's sheep. It's about standing out in front and leading the flock, not hiding in the back and pushing them forward. As Peter told the elders in 1 Peter, what Noah read for us, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now, being an elder at this church does require making decisions. The elders have to decide what we should do and not do as a congregation. They set limits and they set goals for this body of believers. They set us on a straight course when we need it, but they don't do that in the background, pushing us forward. They do it by standing out in front. That's pro leadership, right? Standing out in front and setting an example of where we're going to go. That's why part of their job description is that they should be good fathers and good husbands and that they should be well thought of in the community. Elders are to stand out in front and lead by the example of their love for Christ. That love is paramount, and when they have it, it's going to manifest in all those other qualifications we read about from Paul. For instance, when an elder uh, is growing in his love for Christ and for Christ's creation, then he's going to have a good reputation in the community. That love is going to shine through. So even when uh, he's standing up for something, a truth that maybe the world doesn't like very much, his love is going to shine through so much that they still have a respect for him. Or another one, as Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. When an elder loves Jesus, he's going to want to study the commands of God and be capable uh, of teaching others and want to strive to live a righteous life. It's not a a life of perfection, but by relying on Jesus in love, he's being made perfect in Christ. So love flows through all of these qualifications we see. And like Jesus told Peter, if they have that love, they are going to know their job. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes. Jesus said, well, then you are going to feed my flock. So Christian leadership is not always about who's in control. Christian leaders don't lord their position over others. They oversee, but they don't dominate. Those leaders who want to be great in the eyes of God will become slaves of others, just like Christ did. That is pro leadership. And Ephesians 5 that we mentioned in class this morning talks about how we can stand up and get in front and lead even when we are in this position of submission. And he said that we all can do it in every position in life, not just elders. Ephesians 5, 21, it says, submit to one another out of fear of God. He's talking to everybody. We'll see the list of people he talks about, but we all are to submit. He says, first he tells wives, for example, wives, submit to your own husbands as to 
the Lord in verse 22. And then it tells husbands how to submit to their wives. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Then it tells children how to submit to their parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, the beginning of chapter 6, verse 1. Then it tells fathers how to submit to their children. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Then it tells employees or, or slaves at the time how to submit to their employers. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. And it tells masters or employers how to submit to their employees. And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality in him. You know, when we get submission right, then we become an example to the rest. We lead in teaching the rest how to become servants. And by leading in servanthood, we become great in the eyes of God. Jesus said, whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. To most people, that does not make sense. Well, leadership is supposed to be the opposite of servitude, right? We're not supposed to be servants when we're leaders. Leaders aren't supposed to serve. They're supposed to be served. Most leaders we see, they aren't so concerned about loving others. They're concerned about how they can get love for themselves or fear for themselves, or they can get others to serve them. Most leaders would look at Jesus's model of leadership and say it is doomed for failure because he emphasizes love too much at the expense of what they think is truly important, control. When we love too much, we cede control. But Jesus said, no, no, no. The big picture is love. If you don't have that, then you don't have anything else. Remember, Paul wrote to the letters of the Corinthians, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. No matter how religious I seem or how piously I live, if I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is paramount because God is love. And a leader without love profits us nothing. Here's the deal. We can find great administrators anywhere. We can find people who fit the qualifications that Paul lays out to a T. We can find great husbands and great fathers, people uh, who are sober, people who have great reputations in the community, even people who know all the facts of the Bible inside and out. But if they do not have love, our work under them will lead to nothing. And I think the reason Paul says it this way is because an elder's love for Jesus and his love for other people are what make him have the servant leadership attitude that Christ demands, that proistomy leader that Christ is. They will recognize that Christ is the ultimate authority, and by following his example, they will be an example to us. I remember one church in a, another community that had a, a powerful children's choir. 
so much so that it grew and it grew, um, started taking up a lot of, of the, the funding that they were bringing in. Uh, and in time, the people who ran that choir became such a force that they controlled everything. Everything in the church revolved around that ministry. And if anyone dared to question it or, or threaten it, uh, the people in charge did everything from uh, threaten the board to firing the preacher there. And they were subject to no other authority. They held all the keys to all the locks. And when you get right down to it, it, this is all about what kind of leadership style we're going to follow. It was one based on love or one based on control. It's about who owns the keys. So who does own the keys? Who owns the church? Who owns you and I that comprise her? Jesus does. And when Peter was writing to the elders in 1 Peter 5, he said, the elders who are among you, I exhort. I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. The church is God's flock. The chief shepherd, the real pastor of the church, is Jesus. As a congregation, we need to think and study and pray about and for Mike and Josh that they'll continue to develop in this kind of love for Jesus. They'll be an example for us and guide us to carry out uh, his will in this community because God demands and the church desperately needs mortal shepherds who know who owns the church and love the people that comprise her. And when they understand that, they can lead us to accomplish incredible things for the Lord, and they themselves, as First Peter says it, receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. But servant leadership, proistomy leadership, it isn't just for elders. For each person in this room, when we place ourselves in submission to the great pastor who's Jesus, out of love, we know that on that final day when we stand before the throne of God, we will hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful leader, no, servant to each and every one of us. That is what we want Jesus to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of of your Lord. If those are the words that you are desperate to hear, you're ready to make Jesus your chief shepherd, the Lord and master of your life, I ask you to come to the front of the room as we stand and as we sing.